Welcome to Education Suspended, a podcast focused on exploring, engaging, and dialoguing with those in education who are passionate about changing the status quo and evolving the archaic system we have inherited. Education Suspended is a production of Intricate Roots Educational Consulting Services. Our editor and production manager is Katie Kuneen. Our producer is Jamie Higa, and our music is provided by Poets Row. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Education Suspended. We're so glad to be back. Dr. Jessica Pfeiffer coming at you. Okay, I had to say it. Jamie and I graduated. We're finally doctors. It's a little scary. I won't say it ever again. It just sounds weird in my head. We are super excited to be back. We apologize for the long wait. It's totally my fault. Graduation, the end of the school year, and moving really kicked my butt. But alas, we are back. Today, we sit down with Pia Kea from Hawaii. This is an interview that we actually did quite a while ago. There are so many good conversations that we have in here. She reminds us that it's okay to be uncomfortable, and we can use teaching practices that we focus on with the kids to support us in our ability to grow comfortable in being uncomfortable. She highlights, again, for us, the importance of identity and belonging. And what does that mean? And just as we get ready for another school year coming up, how are we going to create our good trouble? How are we going to push and evolve this archaic system? She, at the time of this interview, was a non-classroom inclusive practices resource teacher. Her story is really, really cool. And she is currently the program manager for a community-facing grant-funded program, which focuses on getting public school students in Hawaii into college and ready for the community. We're super excited to be back. Thanks for listening. Spread the word. Sit down and enjoy the IKEA with Education Suspended. Now, listen, we, we talked about this before um, with some other guests, but we have someone from, let's say, far away from the islands. Pia Kia is from Hawaii, and we've just spent about five to ten minutes before we started recording of just talking about the jealousy because she came, you can't see her, but she's literally wearing a sweater and saying that it's cold and it's probably around 60 to 60 to 65 degrees. And that's just, I just felt like we had to say that exactly. Anything in the seventies and below is cold back home. You're in a wool sweater. I can't even get over it. But anyway, (laughs) we'll just start jumping into this. Let's just kind of start with your story. What do you do? How did you get there? And what role did your own educational experience play in influencing you? Hi, thank you for having me from Chile, Hawaii. It is 60 degrees. I'm wearing, it is a cotton sweater. I'll have those now. All right, not wool, not wool. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I only get to wear it once a year for about two weeks and I wear it the whole time. So <laughs> my name is Pika. I am a teacher here in, in Hawaii. I am a non-classroom teacher. I work in the Nankudi Wainai Complex area, meaning I serve nine schools in one of our most rural settings here on Oahu. It is on the Leeward Coast. It's about 40 miles from the Honolulu Airport. I actually, and I've been in this line of work for about six years now. I actually went to a private school my entire life. I went to a private school for Native Hawaiians, but I did live in another rural area on Oahu, and I saw a lot of educational inequity in action in my life every single day. I did not grow up uh, wealthy. My privilege came from where I went to school, of course, but when I got home, you know, it was 
a lot of the things my students themselves experience. I got into education actually through Teach for America. I had no idea what it was when I joined. I just really wanted to make a difference. And I knew that becoming a teacher would be the best way to do that. I was working at the state capitol here in Hawaii. I was working for um, our current lieutenant governor. He was a state senator at the time. And I just saw the legislative process and how education changed based on it and wanted to do some on the ground work with Native Hawaiians. I wanted to make a difference and really thought teaching was the best way to do that. So I mm-hmm. dived in head first and have not looked back since. <laughs> Hey, you were saying you're, you work specifically with nine schools. Specifically, what is your area of focus with these nine schools? So right now I am doing inclusive practices. So my job is to help these schools implement inclusionary practices throughout all their grade levels, K through 12. Um, it's kind of a mixed bag. Whoever needs help, they'll just contact me. So I'm not really in all nine at one time. It's a lot of focusing on one school at a time, pretty much, and a lot of different projects going on. Um, it's not as hectic, hectic as it sounds, but it kind of is as hectic as it sounds. I was hoping, actually, before we kind of jump in, because I know we have some questions prepared and we kind of also just flow with, with the conversation. It would be, I think, helpful if you and maybe Jamie, you can jump in as well. I'd love to know a little bit about the actual history. Uh, and say I say Hawaii, but I I know I say it wrong. Say it again. Technically, it's Hawaii. I interchanged with Hawaii just because I did live on the continent for a bit. And when you say Hawaii, the conversation kind of stops there. So admittedly, I have like assimilated with the correct, um, incorrect pronunciation of it, but it is Hawaii. 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 Yes. See, I already learned something. Can you walk us through the, the history of the islands? You know, Jamie, you've, you have taught me so much that I did not learn any, anything in school about. And so I think it would just be helpful to set the platform for the cultural pieces, especially because I'm sure we're going to jump into the inequities that exist on the islands. And I think this would help. Cliff notes, cliff notes here. What should we know? In a nutshell, yeah. well, first and foremost, going to recommend this book. It's called um, Hawaii Story by Hawaii's Queen. You can find it on good old Amazon for $10. But basically, Hawaii is an illegally occupied nation by the United States of America. In 1893, our queen, the Iwakulani, was imprisoned in her palace, Iolani Palace, and forced, violently forced, they had held guns to her head, to sign an illegitimate document. And we were overtaken, we're annexed, colonized, whatever you want to call it. Long story short, it has had long-standing implications even to this day because we were very much a functioning kingdom. Yolani Palace had electricity before the White House of America. So that's something interesting. And our uh, monarchs were traveling the world. They were diplomats. They were creating all these different relationships. The main thing people will tell you is if America hadn't annexed Hawaii, then someone else would have. And that is just an outright lie that we don't have. That is a whole other podcast topic. But basically, it's just affected a lot. I do know Hawaiian. I took about five or six years of it in school. I was very lucky to have that afforded to me. My parents and their parents, they could not speak or learn Hawaiian in school. It was illegal. So there's a lot of different things going on across the generations that are still alive today. Very complicated, but that's just kind of a, a brief. Can you guys give us just a little time? I mean, year? I want to place this. So 1893 was the annexation. Okay, um, I guess you said that. And then we're kind of experiencing right now a second cultural renaissance of 
Hawaiian language and culture. The first one occurred in the 70s. People were really just demanding that, no, this is not okay. Like our culture, Hawaiians, Hawaiian language, all of it, it was a, a dying culture at that time. Like people weren't speaking Hawaiian. We really have an oral history, not a whole lot of writing prior to like missionaries coming in the 1800s. Everything was passed down orally. So it was very important that we keep that up. And in the 70s, our, our, not ancestors, but our, our you know, older family members decided that they had enough and they were going to start a revolution. And that has continued to this day. We are now in a second round of that and it's just getting stronger and stronger. While there are not a whole lot of like full-blooded Hawaiians left simply because of the melting pot that is Hawaii plantations, everything going on. I don't know that there's been a stronger time in history, in modern history, that our language and culture and our people have been thriving pretty cool. Thank you. First off for sharing that history. You made a statement of like, it's, it's really played into the educational inequities that you focus on in, in your job. So tell us more, what, what are some of these big uh, educational inequities that you are seeing and that you experience? Hawaii is pretty unique because we have like one educational system, but like different complex areas, districts, complex areas, and they're all based on like your geographical region. And the saying is, as you go more east here on Oahu, you're going to see that inequity in actions. I work all the way west, like the road ends where I work. It just ends. It just literally drops up into the ocean. Not literally. There's a parking lot. <laughs> it, <laughs> the joke is, hey, how do I get to this particular area? You just keep going until the road stops and it's true. And as you go more east, it's just totally different. Physically, like geographically, the roads are better. The neighborhoods are cleaner. The streetlights work. People aren't dying just from pedestrian accidents because there's a lot more enforcement. It's physically visible. When you're in the schools, you can see it. Everything from access to childcare to funding, the quality of food. We're on the same island. We're in the same education system, and it is completely different. It influences natives more, yes? For sure. We have a higher concentration of Native Hawaiians on the west side where I teach. Our schools are predominantly Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander. We do have a lot of military families as well because there are some bases out there and it's a lot cheaper to live out there. It's on the beach and stuff like that. They're very transient and that too affects things because the student formulas and funding are based off of, you know, those numbers. And when you have transient students, it gets really complicated, but huge concentration of Native Hawaiians where I work. Um, there's pockets in the other more like affluent areas, like where I'm from, it's actually all the way east on the other side of the island between two affluent areas. So it's interesting seeing that we can have these pockets of like, I don't want to say poverty, but it's not affluent. Title I schools, um, high number of students receiving free or reduced lunch between these areas where it's completely the opposite. And there's probably a five mile difference between these schools. It's wow. very unique. I'm just curious about the current demographics of Hawaii. So Jamie, you're going to have to help me out here. I think it'd be like Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, Asian Pacific Islanders. We have a lot of Portuguese people. I am Portuguese. I'm Hawaiian, Portuguese, and Chinese. And I'm actually like a pretty equal mix of all three. But I identify as Native Hawaiian. That's how I was raised. Samoan, um, Tongan, Micronesian, Melanesian, all kinds of Asian. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, that's helpful. Thanks. I also want to add that upon moving to Denver, 
I realized how we tend to do so much of like, you are Asian, you are white, you are indigenous, right? In Hawaii, in Hawaii, it is such a melting pot that you have people that are completely mixed race. And it's, it's not something that we necessarily try to tease apart. It is, it is what it is. And people have the freedom of expression to identify how they want to identify. That's a really good point, Jamie. I mean, I think from the context of marginalization, how do you see that showing up then in your schools? To, to your point, let's just use Colorado as an example. Yes, there is this, this sense of like, oh, this person is, this person is, this person is. And what we know is that when it comes to educational settings, sometimes the what you are doesn't belong. So you have the sense of marginalization, right? If you are not, if you are a black or brown student, if you are LGBT student, if you are not a member of the uh, major religious group, there's a difference there. So what is more marginalization like on the island? And how would you talk about that? I think that people in general, while we're more accepting because we're known as a melting pot and many of us, it's very rare to find someone who is just like one specific ethnicity. You're very hard for us to find someone who is just one specific thing here. Not impossible though. My husband is 100% Filipino. I should put that out there. But I think the marginalization comes in when it's as simple as filling out a form. You have to pick one. You can't put, you can't check multiple. Which one do you most identify with? And I think that's kind of when I started to think about, huh, as applying to colleges. And at the time when I was applying to colleges, Native Hawaiian was not its own thing. It was classified under... Asian Pacific Islander at the time. And I was like, okay, I am Asian and Pacific Islander. So like, do I check that? And then I think one of my relatives was like, or maybe my college counselor was like, no, you put other and you put Native Hawaiian. Yeah, I think we really take for granted the representation that dominant culture feels. It's so easy to see yourself identified in a form and not think twice about how not seeing yourself identified on a form can really affect you. Katie, my girlfriend is Samoan and Irish. And like, what do you put for that? I know this is a conversation that we've talked about many times of like, I don't know how to identify myself. And so it is a constant erasure of identity and culture when we're not having this type of representation. You're right. Like if we don't have that representation and in the work of inclusion, even if even if one is not aware of it, it is going to impact that sense of belonging. And we know that your sense of emotional safety, to some degree, the, the sensation of physical safety is really connected to, do I feel like I fit here? Do I feel like I belong? Yeah. And that concept of the, the generational trauma is so strong because of because of the Hawaiian history and because of the illegal overthrow of the government and taking away language, taking away culture. It is so pervasive in Hawaii. So how do you see this generational, like this generational trauma show up in schools? Um, the generational trauma, you can see it in like the fact that some of these systems have not changed for for generations with the kids and their parents and their grandparents like the schools are the same some of the staff members are the same the you know literacy rates and stuff they're not improving they're getting worse and it's hard to get out of there when you're not given anything to do so we see that equity versus equality picture you know if you're never given the ladder to to climb over that fence like how do they expect you to to ever get there 
in your work, how do you keep this at the forefront of your mind? What are you doing with this focus of inclusion and in honoring the trauma from the generational perspective of parents that you work with, the students that are there? What does that look like for you? So the generational trauma, I'd say, comes in the form of all the various societal inequities we see, access to health services, mental, emotional, physical, housing, high quality child care. And we know that a lack of those things across generations, it just implodes, you know, it snowballs and it implodes. And we see it in our classrooms when students have all these different special needs. And that's kind of where the inclusion piece comes in. When we talk about inclusion, we're talking about having our students who receive services in the least restrictive setting possible. So not just because, hey, this child acts out, they don't get a lot of attention at home. So they come to school and they act out because clearly that's the only attention. It might be the only hot meal they're getting. That free reduced lunch is a huge thing in our community. That's where the inclusion comes in, is making sure that we're not segregating these kids and we're not pushing them off into a resource room. We're making sure that they're getting access to the highest quality education possible. And that goes right along with helping out at home and figuring out what we need to support families. Again, with access to services, we have them available for free or discounted rates. So let's make sure we get them into the clinic, get them the student receiving services at school with a counselor. And it's a lot of work. It's a lot of individual staff members being very on it with these families, because when we're just trying to survive, especially, you know, you put in the pandemic, prior to this pandemic, a lot of families were just getting by, just trying to survive. And we don't have time to make a therapy appointment or drive your kid to the doctors. We have older siblings watching younger siblings going to school and working at McDonald's to support their family, you know? So, you know, I, I loved earlier, both you and Jamie kind of mentioning the continuum. You should see yourself on a continuum, not a binary sort of you're this or you're that. How do your students view themselves culturally? So I primarily, when I was a classroom teacher, I'm going to draw on my classroom teacher experience. I worked with middle schoolers. And if you've ever worked with middle schoolers, they are, I love them. I love, thank you. Thank you. I'm constantly talking to people who are so scared of middle school. And I'm like, hey, it's the best of both worlds. And they're so moldable and they're so fun. They're also very smelly, but that's just middle school. So my middle schoolers for living in a rural community, so isolated. Some of them have never, I live near the airport. I live 40 miles away from them. So I would commute every single day an hour back and forth, at least on an island, an hour back and forth. It's a little ridiculous. And some of them had never even been to the city that I live in. When they found out that I live so far, they were just like, what? I've never even been there. But you'd be surprised at how non-conforming they are to like gender roles, identity roles. They know what they are. Like I am Hawaiian, I am Filipino, I am Chinese. But the way they kind of just let themselves be who they want to be. Like I've had students who have approached me at very young ages and said, like, I'm gender non-conforming. I, my sexuality is fluid and I'm this particular, this is what I am, but this is what I am not. And I might change tomorrow. It just makes me happy to see those things because as a kid, I was a girl. I was expected to be straight. I was expected to be this, that, and the other and fit in this box and be quiet and speak when spoken to. So... I'm wondering if like, yeah, what is that? What is the influence on students of being able to see people that look like them regularly? And especially from that native indigenous perspective. And now I'm just going to ramble on for what's going through my head. And so just bear with me. I think what's coming up is this reality that we are on stolen land is one that, that, that we are, I'm going to use the word privileged to ignore regularly because it's a huge expansive thing that 
you can just go on and on and not really have to hold yourself accountable. Like, oh yeah, my house is on land that doesn't belong to me. The, the cultural, the historical implications for that. What I'm wondering is in, in Hawaii, because it's just, it's a smaller land. It's surrounded by water. Like there's so many people that look so different. If I'm an indigenous or native student in Hawaii, I'm going to see more people that might look like me versus if I'm an indigenous or native student in Colorado, most of the people around me are going to look not like me. So I just wonder, does that influence the educational system? Yes. And I think it's very interesting that you bring that up because while things are changing, we have a lot more people getting into native, like native Hawaiian people and, you know, indigenous people, people of color getting into education. So I, I've been in a few different fellowships and I know that a lot of times when you ask a black educator, how many black teachers did you have growing up? They'll be like, it's very few and far between a lot of the time. For here, it's how many non-Asian women teachers did you have growing up in a public school? Mm-hmm. And Jamie, how many, I'm going to put you on the spot, how many Asian women teachers did you have? Uh, There were, yeah, so, so many. Asian women, Asian men, and maybe a handful of white males. And it kind of goes back to the whole expectation of these particular groups of people and caretaking. Yeah, I also think of the education that we received. I can't speak for what it was like at Kamehameha schools, but at a public school that I went to, you received the same history education as everyone else on in the United States. And you you learn Hawaiian history as it is written by white people. So you don't learn it as it is. It is, go ahead, P. And the people that are teaching Hawaiian history and Hawaiian language and Hawaiian culture in our public schools, they're not always experts on the subject matter. They're a social studies or English teacher who has been assigned this topic by their principal. Speaking from experience, I've had colleagues reach out, hey, you're Hawaiian, do you have any things I could teach? No, I do not. (laughs) That theme rings true across all the states. The history and talking about our Native Indigenous culture is... I would I wouldn't even say heinous because it's non-existent in my opinion. <laughs> what you did talk about, and I'm very curious about this cultural resurgence, and maybe some of the kids are now tapping into their real history. And I, I'd, love, sure. I'd love to know more of the, the nuts and bolts about that and, and also drill it down into how it's you know affecting how curriculum is taught. That that to me is a key thing I think all of us could benefit from hearing about is what steps are happening for a more inclusive and and maybe even a more true history-based education. I feel the need to disclose for anyone who will listen to this. These are my personal views and opinions. The cultural resurgence that we see is definitely affecting our, our kids and their education at this time. And I think that is in part to a lot of brave educators. I'm not going to say the entire system because I believe that our our school system does not do a good job of addressing anything that's any semblance of political or controversial. It's very much like stay away from that topic so that we don't get in trouble. I myself as a classroom teacher have gotten into a little bit of good trouble for addressing those topics because I'll be damned if I'm going to sit in front of a bunch of moldable minds and not help them form an educated opinion on something. And I think we have a lot of brave educators who are tackling these subjects, such as Mauna Kea. It's like a huge issue. A lot of the kids really felt very strongly about it. Should we build another telescope and desecrate this sacred land or science or culture? 
And mm. we are a very scientific culture. So it's, it's not it's not so much of a controversy, but we had people residing on Mauna Kea in protest for hundreds of days, I believe. A lot of my friends were up there for so long. The political became personal. And a lot of the kids saw that it became a social media movement and it's trickling into our classrooms and you can't ignore it, you know, after a while. So the appropriate way to do it would be to have a discussion, leave space for students to share their own ideas, facts and reasonings and opinions, and be very tactful about it. This is how I would approach it in my classroom. Let's have a discussion, not a debate, a discussion. You need to come with some facts. You're not just going to be throwing points that you saw on Instagram. Why is that true? How does that make you feel? But it's not easy to do that. So it's not everybody having these hard conversations. It goes back to that sense of belonging and that classroom culture. If you don't have that there, if all students don't feel safe, literally safe to speak up, it's just going to be a surface level, super fake, unproductive discussion. Jamie's clapping right now, but we I are miss classroom a podcast, teaching. so we cannot see Jamie clapping, but let me just let you know that she's clapping. Greener, I want to, I want to ask you a question real quick. When you were in the, t- in the classroom, were you given supports and services to have conversations about the native lands that, that you are on in North Dakota and the, in the indigenous native cultures? Well, I, I think in the years I taught, I was not given half enough of that education. I was right on the edge of <laughs> just really the very typical mainstream North American public school. I would say at least we had some diversity in the literature we taught, and we had a lot of choice in that. So while I don't think the inclusiveness was as strong as it should have been, nor was our emphasis on our own Native peoples enough, I don't think it was close to enough. But it was beginning, and we had the freedom to do it. Just as you discussed, brave teachers could do it. So as an English teacher, it was important what stories I chose and what points of view I could bring out in those stories. So there was freedom to do it. I wouldn't say there was a a ton of encouragement or support to do it. I feel the tension. It's, and it's, that's an important tension to feel. And it's an important tension for us teachers to live with is that our history needs, we need to see history from a lot more points of view than we have. And, and I think that'll, that has a chance to make a big change here in the, just in the way we teach people's history. You bring up a good point. I think that a lot of people, the brave teachers are the ones willing to sit with that discomfort and face it. Nobody wants to face their own problems, much less the problems of their country and their students. And every single day it's hard. It's not easy. And from my own experience, very scripted curriculum when I came into teaching, and I was told I needed to do it with fidelity because all my students are behind. So we need to get them on grade level, which at seventh grade, you know, it's a, it's a bit too late. We need to do some remediation, but we're not going to be getting them to anything crazy. Usually for the first few years, I was very much teaching with fidelity and I realized it was just boring a hole in their brains. Like it wasn't very effective and it wasn't very interesting. I would slip in my own like little articles here and there, like, Hey, let's, instead of a debate about this random article from five years ago that you have no idea who this is because it's in Tennessee, how about we use this? So I was slowly put my own little thing in there. I had a very supportive department 
we had to all be the same. So we'd be like, let's find, let's change it. So like our argumentative writing unit, we decided to focus on uh, homelessness here because it's a huge issue in our, in our, where we teach and across our island, huge issue. And it turned into this really great unit that I enjoyed, the students really enjoyed. We ended up submitting testimony to the legislature. That's where some of that good trouble came in. I'll never forget someone calling for me to be fired for that. And I thought I was going to be fired. I was not. As I was tenured and I felt a little more safe, physically safe for not losing my job, for doing innovative things, I introduced House on Mango Street to my seventh graders. We had three weeks. We finished our scripted curriculum early. It was just before Christmas break and I didn't want to do anything too heavy. So let's read House on Mango Street. And um, I was so stoked to tell them like, this book is banned in Arizona and we're going to read it. And they wrote their own little name stanzas. And that goes with their identity because that's a huge part of middle school is explaining your identity and that was like one of the most fun three weeks I ever had I think I did it with two groups of students and they loved it they loved learning about different cultures and we did have a few kids who identified with some of the characters in that book and could explain a little bit more you know just kind of taking like a little field trip for them what a great choice both of you identified which I'm I'm glad that you you said of it's okay to be uncomfortable if you allow yourself to sit sit in that uncomfortableness I mean even maybe if it's just for a few moments you can begin to empathize with what a lot of our students experience on a daily basis. You know, in teaching practice, we talk about wait time. Wait time is important for a lot of different things, for management, for allowing students to get the confidence to answer. And we need to do that as adults. So when we're having these important meetings with administrators and people who are not even in the classroom, but in charge of directing these different things, make them uncomfortable and make them see like, hey, this is what we're doing. And is it working? If it is, great. If it's not, we need to face that. When you were teaching, were there aspects of the Native culture that you brought into the classroom to help you teach? And even, I guess, in your work now and your role in, the, in, I call it the district, but it sounds like it's a different title. Yeah, we call it the district too, even though it's actually the complex, but it's, it's easier to say district. Because I was an English teacher, it was a little bit hard teaching. Everyone here, pretty much English is your second language. I have two nephews and they speak English and a little bit of Samoan and they're considered ESL at their school because we speak Pidgin, which is um, technically Hawaii Creole, I think. So it's kind of hard for me to do Native Hawaiian stuff, but in my work now, we have a real big push for project-based learning and one idea that has happened. Listen, this is the real world. We love hearing your dog. Keep going. (laughs) He's like, he's like, pay attention to me. So project-based learning, something I did with a social studies teacher, um, we put on a Makahiki event. Makahiki is the way to really simplify it and not do it justice is Hawaiian Thanksgiving. It's really just a time of recharge, resurgence, and like getting ready for a change between seasons. So we put on a Makahiki event for the students where they learn to play all of these different games that were originally established like hundreds of years ago in ancient Hawaii. So modern day checkers, bowling, spear throwing, tug of war. And these are aspects of native Hawaiian, ancient Hawaiian culture that would have died off otherwise if we didn't pass it down for generations and keep it going. So it was really special to have these kids experience the things that they were normally learning from a textbook and just get to do it in action. And we linked it to a, a science. We did like a science and social studies type of unit where they went to a fish pond on the other side of the island, which some of them had never even been to that side of the island. It's like an hour and a half drive. And they got to just see how ancient Hawaiians 
fed themselves and their communities with these incredible fish ponds. We have community groups that are building, they're rebuilding ancient fish ponds that are like 700 years old in an effort to be more sustainable and keep these practices going. So we really got to do a lot of cool stuff with that particular unit. And that's because I, as a district teacher, not in the classroom, had the time and the resources. I was working for a grant at the time. The funding is allocated appropriately. We can do these amazing, incredible things. It's just the money, baby. It's all, that's all it is. <laughs> but how about in the minds of your teachers that you work with, though? I mean, are they in infusing, I'm kind of going back to that whole idea of resurgence, are they infusing more and more of this into their daily curriculum? I think it's really a top-down enforcement approach. Particularly where I work, we have a fair amount of new teachers. When you come in new and you're pretty concerned about just surviving and keeping your job. And if your principal isn't saying, hey, these are the practices we put in place and this is what we do and these are our students and this is how we address that and make them feel that. And I only know like a handful who are willing to really say, we need to establish this sense of culture and belonging, like truly walk the talk, not just say it, not just put posters on the wall, but actually put it to practice and you see it in action amongst their student body and their teachers. Modeling mirroring the didactic back and forth is something that we need to come back to in education. It feels like kind of a one-way street at times, but that's the basis of teaching. And when you think about that one from the cultural standpoint, that has to start there. For sure. I agree. Education hasn't changed for like a hundred years. Yeah. So that's why we need those two powerful words you ladies keep bringing up. Good trouble. Yeah. There you go. Get yourself in some good trouble. Well, PK, I cannot thank you enough for joining us. Jamie, thank you for connecting us. We keep talking as we are, you know, on the journey of this podcast that there's, there is a wealth of people out there to talk to. And this is possible because Jamie's like, Hey, I know someone that's doing the work that is trying to change the system. So we appreciate your time. We'll have a bone to pick with Jamie after this, that she has not taught me spear throwing because clearly that's a thing. And I don't know why I'm not doing that in my backyard. You got to swim with the sharks first. That's why I refuse. <laughs> I refuse. It's a, it's a defense to the shark swimming. So well, <laughs> oh, thank you folks Jamie, for having me. That's the yeah. best comeback yet. Thank you. Jamie's, Jamie's full of good comebacks y'all. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. I'm, I'm so glad you agreed to be with us and share your story. It's been an honor talking to you and thanks for doing the good work. It's been so fun. Thank yeah. you for letting me thank rant about so good much. trouble. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for the good trouble comment. I'm going to go get in some trouble today. That's what I like to hear. All right. <laughs> do something dangerous. Just let's get off this podcast. Yeah, I'm going to go. go ahead and wrap this up. Thanks, everybody.